Hi, I'm, I'm, my name's Barbara. I'm an Al-Anon. And I'm from Tucker, Georgia. Uh, for you, those of you who don't know, that's a suburb of Atlanta. And I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be anywhere. Uh, the ladies who spoke before me, uh, I did everything they did. I did it sober. <laughs> I'm not kidding. We'll get into that. Uh, I am grateful to the committee uh, for asking me to come and share with you. Uh, I got a call one evening and I went, oh sure, because I've been told never to say no. And she asked my husband if he'd speak. He said, sure. We hang up. I go, what was that lady's name? <laughs> no clue who I had just said yes to. But I was told that she never say no, and uh, I said yes, and we got here. By the grace of God, and uh, somebody who could drive us here. Uh, and I'm grateful to be here. I grew up in the disease of alcoholism. Uh, I have lived with the disease of alcoholism my entire life. And uh, I just traded up. Uh, I traded one alcoholic in for another. Uh, I did date one non-alcoholic for a while. He bored me nearly to death. <laughs> I could not wait for him to leave. I couldn't leave him, but I, I was bored. <laughs> I love alcoholics. There's some excitement there that's a real attraction to me. There's a sparkle in the eye. It is cunning, baffling, and powerful. It says that in the book, and I believe it. And I like to go along for that ride. And uh, when they're not causing trouble, I am. Uh, I'm not one of those nice, quiet, demure Alanots at all. Uh, the feelings I had as a child growing up in alcoholism was I felt unwanted, unloved, and alone. No different than the alcoholics in this world. I believe truly that the only difference between me and an alcoholic is the obsession. I do not have the allergy of the body. But let me tell you, my obsession is with him. <laughs> Whoever him is. <laughs> At any given moment. I tried to fill a God hole with a man. And I started out very young to try to do that. Growing up in alcoholism, I learned some things. I learned how to lie. Uh, I was taught that by an alcoholic. You see, he would get drunk. And while he was drunk, everything was wonderful and happy. But the next day, when the guilt and the remorse set in, then we, the beatings began. The accusations began. And I grew up in physical abuse. Now, I'm not talking about a spanking. I'm talking about true physical abuse, and there is a difference. We have let that get muddled somewhere along the way, but there is a difference. And uh, I was beaten so bad one time I wouldn't go to school. I refused to go because I had bruises and welts all over my body. I had my first nervous breakdown at the age of 10. And the man who rescued me was my grandfather. He came and got me. And he took me to a place, a farm in Oklahoma where I thrived and I loved it. And I worshipped the ground my grandfather walked on. 
and I, I worshipped him for years after coming to Al-Anon. I thought he was the best man that ever walked the face of the earth. And he was a good man, but I think he had a little problem with alcohol. <laughs> he had that bottle up in the cupboard way up high, and it was for medicinal purposes. But they had, I didn't ever remember anybody being sick, but they had to replace that bottle on occasion. So somebody was drinking it. And we did have, uh, they didn't make moonshine, but they made homemade beer. You know, that stuff will explode if it's not done right. <laughs> my, my dad blew up our garage in Kansas. That was a bit embarrassing. See, the disease of alcoholism was also embarrassing to me. Uh, I was appalled by it sometimes. And other times I embraced it and loved it. So there was all that going on, on me, in me. At the age of 14, I ran away from home. I went to an Air Force base. <laughs> For a few days, uh, God took care of me. Uh, I was not uh, hurt in any way, shape, or form, and uh, I am grateful for that today. And the police officer found me, took me home. I begged him, "Please don't take me home. He's going to beat me." He said, "No, he won't." He threatened my dad, and I didn't get a beating for that. But as soon as I was able, I left that house, and I proceeded to do some of the things I wanted to do, but I really was out there looking for the next alcoholic, you know. And I found him. They're not hard to find. Because <laughs> he got this little radar going on. And uh, I had my radar up, and uh, uh, this guy came in, and his dad made him a bet that he couldn't get me to go out with him. And the guy told me about it. I said, sure, I'll go out with you. You can win that 20 bucks from your dad. So I went out with him. We got married. Uh, out of that marriage um, I learned a few things about myself that weren't really pleasant um, if you grow up in an abusive home as a child you have two ways to live your life as an adult you either pick an abusive husband and continue that cycle or you become the abuser well guess which one I chose I stand before you a reformed husband beater I would beat him. I would go into bars, find him, and beat him. <laughs> I have been kicked out of more bars than he was ever kicked out of sober. Because I'm not that quiet person. I'm going to confront you head on and say, what in that bad that are you doing in here? When we got babies at home. And he made the mistake one time of talking back, and I knocked his, knocked his tooth out, uh, broke his glasses, and I was standing over him in a parking lot, and I said, get up, I'm not done. <laughs> this is the way I lived. This is not the way you're supposed to treat your husband. But I had no idea. I thought we were in this war together. Somehow we were going to fight our way through life. you know. And then one day something happened. Uh, everybody has a line where in themselves where they say no more. I will not do this anymore. And it's different for other everybody, you know. And mine is other women. Will not, will not handle that at all. Don't like it. Don't do it well. I beat her up. Then I proceeded to go to beat him up. And during this time, I was in a, a whiteout. I was not in my body. There was this rage going on. It was a blind rage. After I beat her up, I came to... 
Now, I'm sober now. I came to, and I was standing over him. He was passed out in, in the bed with a butcher knife in both hands. And I was going to get rid of the pain. That was my answer, to get rid of the pain. And something happened in me, and I didn't see any great flash of light or anything. It's just this calm came over me, and I put the knife down. I went in my children's bedroom. I pushed a dresser against the door, not to keep him out. I was keeping me in. And I went to sleep, and the next day I left because I knew I had to leave that house because somebody was going to die, and it didn't look like it was going to be me. (laughs) And I didn't really want to go to jail for killing him because I didn't think he was worth it. (laughs) Bottom line, he wasn't worth it to me. So I took those children, and I went, went back to live with my mother, the one woman in the whole world that I hated. You know, daughters will do that. They will go out, multiply, and come back. (laughs) And that's what I did, show up with two kids, two little kids and me, and just crazy as a loon. And I didn't really have any adventure in my life prior to that, I thought. I thought I'd gotten cheated, so I had... I had read some books. This was during the revolution, you know which one I'm talking about. And I wanted to experiment and to live life, so I went out and proceeded to try everything I'd read in that book. And in order to do that, I dated six married men all at the same time for six months. That will make you tired. (laughs) They all knew about each other because, you see, I didn't care. I called them all together one day over coffee and said, I'm through with all of you. Go away. Leave me alone. My theory about men and women at that particular time in my life was a man was like a Hershey candy bar, and why buy one when the whole world's a C's candy store? And that's what I really believed inside. Because, see, I didn't want to have a relationship. I didn't want you close to me. I didn't want to give you the power to hurt me. And that's what I thought I was doing. So I just used men for whatever I needed at any given moment. And when I was done, you were done. You're out of here. I don't have time. I'm not having any meaningful conversations with you because I don't want to. And I'm doing this deal and I'm working and I'm, I'm working six days a week. The seventh day I'm spending with my children. I have this guy over here that is servicing the account. (laughs) figure that out however you want to but that's what he's doing he's got nothing to do with my life I'm going over here taking care of that it's business, that's it and I'm doing this and I'm walking along I'm pretty happy I think I'm working for a magazine I go to do a story I run into cunning, baffling and powerful over there I go to lunch with him the next day. That evening, he came to my mother's house, moved in with me. Uh, that was April, the middle of April. We were married on June the 3rd, and we've been married uh, 27 years. Now, it's not that I had planned to stay married for 27 years. I hadn't planned on marrying him at all. But see, he was a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he had some kind of code, a moral code. And I had two children, and he would not live with me and those two children without being married. I could have cared less. But he had this code of ethics somewhere. So I, my next thought was, not a problem. Got an attorney. 
I know how to get a divorce. I'm standing up there saying I do, thinking, I wonder what my attorney's going to say about this. <laughs> I did not love him when I said I did. Love was not in the plan. The next two years were the worst two years of my life because I was an AA wife. You know what an AA wife is? She walks three feet behind the, her husband at all times. She never walks beside him or in front of him. She doesn't have anything to say. She, he speaks. She sits on the front row. She nods. She smiles. She waves at people. She has nothing to say because she doesn't know what these people are doing anyway. The other thing that she'll do is she'll sit there and listen to his story and she'll take that information. <laughs> you know where I'm going with this, don't you? Now, the first time you have an argument, you just shove that back down his throat. It had absolutely nothing to do with me, but it was ammunition. Now, I'm such a sweet person, aren't I? So I'm doing this and a lady saw me. And she saw me in June. She waited to February to call me. I really don't know why she waited that long. But we were damn near to the point of divorce. And God, God helped me. He reached out and he said, nope, we're going to help her because she needs help. She don't know she needs help, but she needs help. And so this lady called me and said, uh, I'd like to take you to an Al-Anon meeting. Now, I had been to an Al-Anon meeting when I was 19 years old. My first husband's father was an alcoholic and my mother-in-law took me to my first Al-Anon meeting when I was 19 and you know what I saw? Gray-haired women with J.C. Penney house dresses on sitting around knitting but I loved that mother-in-law and I went with her once a week for three years didn't hear a thing you know you're not ready when you're not ready and I was not ready. So this lady calls me. She says, I want to take you an hour on me. I said, well, I'm really busy. <laughs> I haven't done the dishes. My mother's here. She said, oh, great. You have a babysitter. I'll come over and do the di help you do the dishes. I mean, she was just so accommodating. So all of a sudden, she shows up at my house. Now, I'm not dressed. The dishes aren't done. My mother's sitting there. I'm thinking... I got to go with this lady to get her off the couch. So I went to an Allen on me to get this woman out of my house and off the couch. Well, something happened at the Allen on me. Now, I've heard a lot of people change Allen on meetings because newcomers come into the meeting. Don't do that. Do not waste your time. All you got to do is hug those people, smile, tell them to keep coming back, laugh, have your regular meeting, because I'd like to bet nobody in this room remembers the topic of their first meeting. I don't. Doesn't matter. What I remember is they were smiling and laughing and looked at each other and were happy. I hadn't been happy for a long time. I hadn't smiled for a long time. See, during that two-year period, I got to the point where I couldn't work. Could not work. Couldn't go out of the house. I had thick gold lame curtains over the windows. They were drawn shut at all times. In order to see in there, even in the daytime, you had to turn the lights on. If you called me, we, when my husband called me, we had a code on the phone. And if it wasn't the right code, I didn't answer the phone. I didn't answer the door. I barely got dressed. Why he continued to come home to that, I don't know. But I was paralyzed with fear inside my own house. 
the only time I went out of the house was to go to Little League and the grocery store. And the grocery store was a horrifying experience for me. I could not look at anybody in the face. So I bought everything that was down here. <laughs> Anything that was up here, forget it. We never had that. <laughs> you go in the grocery store, there's a lot of stuff up here. <laughs> they put new stuff up here sometimes. you know. But we didn't have any of that because I couldn't do that. She came and she took me to Al-Anon meetings every day, well, five, five days a week, I think, for, for a month. Then she said the most horrifying thing to me. I guess I thought she was my permanent chauffeur to Al-Anon. She said, now you know where all the meetings are. If you want this deal, you got to go get it. And I thought, oh, my God, I don't have a job. I don't have a car. How am I going to get to these meetings? Well, I'll tell you what. And I had two small children. I got to five meetings a week. I arranged for child care. If I had to go to the meeting an hour and a half ahead of time, I went to the meeting an hour and a half ahead of time, set up the chair, set up the literature, made the coffee, sat there and waited for that first person to get in there so I had somebody to talk to. It didn't matter to me. I needed this. I needed it, and I was willing to go to those meetings that far in advance to get it. They talked about sponsorship. They said, you need a sponsor, you need a sponsor, you need a sponsor. I thought, oh, God, okay, I'll get a sponsor. I had no clue. Two weeks into the program, no clue. I was not afraid because I didn't know they had the option of saying no. So I just said to this lady who took me to my first out, and I mean, I said, will you be my sponsor? She said, yes. Well, something happened to her between that evening and the next morning. <laughs> she went to sleep. She got up me. She was me. She called me at 8.30 in the morning and said, Barbara, I want you to get up. I said, how unreasonable. Yeah, You've got to get up to work a program. I want you to make your bed, brush your teeth, take a bath, and when you're done with that, call me back. She literally walked me through every step of my day because I was paralyzed. I needed that kind of intense care at that point in my life. You know, and... She was a big book thumping Al-Anon, you know. She wanted me to work the steps. And I looked at those steps, and the way I read the steps was, you want me to admit I'm powerless, okay. And then my life's unmanageable, all right, I'll do that. person can't go out of the house, their life's probably unmanageable. You want me to admit that I'm insane, okay, I'll do that. Then you want an unmanageable, insane person to make a decision. That didn't make any sense. <laughs> then you want me to write down everything that everybody had ever done wrong to me. Then you want me to give it to the biggest gossip I know. Okay? Then nobody's going to talk to me. Then you want me to go out and you want me to say I'm sorry to all these people who have wronged me. And then you want me to go get a newcomer and bring them in here and share this with them. That's the way I looked at the steps. Good information into a bad mind comes out garbage. That's what happens. So she had to spoon feed me this a little at a time, and I was a very slow learner. But something was going on in my house. My husband was doing a big book study, and he had these tapes from these two guys called Joe and Charlie. Now, this is a long time ago, and I think it's their original tape. That's how long ago it was. And I would sit in my bedroom, crack the door, and listen to what they were doing over there because they had something I wanted. 
something was going on and I wanted it. I wanted that feeling. I wanted some peace. I wanted some relief. And I knew they were getting it. Well, they got to the part in the book about doing a third step with another human being. Ah, called my sponsor. I said to her, I want to do the third step with you. Out of the big book, the way it says to do it. She said to me, and this almost killed me. She said, what, you need an audience? It was like she had taken a knife and gutted me. So I did what every good person in my condition would do. I called her sponsor and reported her bad behavior. (laughs) The next thing you know, she's doing the third step prayer with me on my knees. (laughs) I didn't know she hadn't gotten there yet. The one thing about sponsoring people, they will push you right into the next step. And that's what I had done. And I didn't know that till years later. She managed to stay one step ahead of me from that point on. But I didn't know at that time that's what was going on. When I say I'm a big book Al-Anon, I did my four step the, the way it's done in the big book. When I came into Al-Anon, we, had, we didn't have our 12 and 12. It hadn't been published yet. And uh, we had very little, limited literature on how to do the steps at that time. So I did what... I needed to do for my recovery and I did it the way it says in the big book and uh, I remember that day I remember going over to her house and I remember driving over there and I remember hating me I hated everything I had become I had compromised everything about that I believed to be true we all somewhere along the line have a moral code and it's ours got nothing to do with you it's mine and I had compromised it And I hated what I had become. And I wanted to go in there and I wanted to do whatever it took to get away from what I had become. I never wanted to see that person again. And that's what the steps have allowed me to do, to walk away from that person and not look in the mirror and see that dead soul. You know, when you go by the mirror and you look and there's nobody home? I don't have to do that anymore. But that's what I was running away from, and I will not go back to that, God willing, on a daily basis. So we've moved through the steps. She got me into service work. Everything's wonderful. You know, I'm even liking him. (laughs) And, you know, and something happened there, too. You know, that big book study, he's standing there talking to somebody, and he had what I called the worry chair. We had a worry chair. We don't have a worry chair anymore, but we had this worry chair, and he was sitting on the hassock of this worry chair. He had the big book out, and he's talking to this new guy about God and the power of this program. And I looked at him, and I went, holy shit, I love him. (laughs) I fell in love with a spiritual being right then and there. I hadn't planned on doing that, okay? But that's what happened. I believe that our, we're still together and still married because of a spiritual connection, because of a God that we have together, not because of anything else, because we sure don't know what we're doing. We went to people. We had to go to people and learn how not to do certain things that we were doing that was killing us. It was killing our relationship. Everybody does these things, and whatever you're doing, you might need a little help in that area. Go get it. 
we did. And we picked two people in the program who were both sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it worked for us. And uh, the one thing that we know is if you take the 12 traditions and you apply them to your family life, you will be better. The way I look at it, if Alcoholics Anonymous can stay together based on 12 traditions, Dennis and I can make it. So we try to practice those 12 traditions in our home life. And we try to share that with other married couples whenever, whenever possible because it's important. That's important work. Well, we're rocking along. I've got two kids. And all of a sudden, the youngest one decides that he's going to do some behavior that causes him to go to jail. Now, he's not drinking or using. I prayed. You have no idea. I would pray, please let him take a drink. Please let him take a drink. I know what to do with him. But this breaking and entering and car theft, I just don't have a clue. And I did everything I possibly could think of to save him from himself. Uh, He spent time in two psych hospitals. It took me about five years to let go. So I did a lot of things during that five years to protect him. Uh, I hid him in a psych ward from the police thinking, I'll help him. I'll get him some help. Now, this is a young man, and he was like 13, I think, at the time. And he had, from the age of three, been around Alcoholics Anonymous. Guess what? He goes in the psych ward. He knows all the language. We taught it to him. He knows all the words. He's conning all the people. Figured out what they wanted him to say. Put it together with some of the things he'd heard dad and mom say. And he was good to go. You know, he got out, he'd be back in again. He did a year at uh, YDC in Georgia. And while he was gone, we moved to Tennessee. I picked him up, took him to Tennessee. Uh, He did it again. Except in Tennessee, he went before a woman judge who had 11 children. And I looked at him and I said, boy, you got by this time, but do not go in front of her again. Your history, if you do. Well, you know, I'm stupid. So he did it again. He ended up in front of her. And what I did was the hardest thing you'll ever have, I as a mother ever had to do. I took my sponsor and I walked into court. And I stood up in court and I said, Your Honor, I believe for his own safety and that of the community, he needs to be put away for a very long time. He was 16 years old. The only thing I gave him to take to jail with him was the uh, Alateen One Day at a Time book. And I looked at him and I said, no matter what you do, I love you, but I'm not doing it with you. And uh, the judge sentenced him to two years, nine months, and two days. I did not go and see him while he was there. I told him I wouldn't. And uh, believe me, I wanted to. There were plenty of times I wanted to. And I would say to my husband, I want to go see Travis. I want to see him. And he said, oh, I'll drive you. (laughs) And I said, no, I want to go. I won't go. I'm going to get out of the way so God can do what God's going to do. If he walked in here today, you would not know the child I'm talking about. He's married, uh, manages a business. Fine young man. 
I think. Uh, see how little bizarre behavior lately, so. But he changed his own life. Yeah. And uh, jail does not, jail does not refine or change anybody. You've got to want to change in there. You've got to make yourself available to the programs that are there to do any kind of changing. But the one thing about Tennessee, they got YDC on the top of this hill, and they get to look at the big guy's prison over here. Now, that's a good deal. If anything's going to change, it's going to be looking at that every day for two and a half years. And I, pr I think that probably changed him more than anything. I have a stepson who's uh, sober, 12 years. He's married to a, an Al-Anon girl, and I love him dearly. Uh, I've known her longer than I've known him. <laughs> you know how that happens sometimes. And uh, about three years ago, she had a stroke at the age of 34. Uh, we made it through that. You never know how your children are going to react to life the life stuff until it happens and that that's when the rubber meets the road you know here's this guy kid he's nine years sober what's he going to do I'm sitting there in, in the waiting room and I'm watching him and I'm, my stomach's churning and, and the doctor's giving us bad news the doctor's you know the doctor's giving us bad news I'm trying to hold his her mother up off the floor and I'm going no 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 I don't believe it God's here and I'm not believing what these doctors say. They told us she would never walk and never talk again. I said, I don't believe it. He can say that, but he don't know our Robin. And he doesn't know our God. And uh, that boy looked at us and he, he went outside and he got in the elevator and he said, I need to be alone. And when he went down the elevator, I went, oh my God. You know, here, here it is. What's going to happen? He went outside and walked around the parking lot and prayed to his God. He came back upstairs and he sat by her side for 30 days and went through every bit of therapy with her and got her through. Fine young man. And he's a fine young man because of Alcoholics Anonymous, not because of anything else. You people gave him what he needed to get through that. About three weeks ago, I've got a, an older son who... who who's uh, just like me, he's kind of anal retentive and uh, really a pain, you know, a real pain, uh, and uh, thinks he has all the answers, you know, and he got married, he married a little Al-Anon, and, and uh, they've had their ups and downs, and, and things are going along, and they, they buy a house, and thinking about having a baby, you know, kids nowadays plan children. I mean, we didn't have Planned Parenthood when I was hanging out, you know. It just, oops, so pregnant. <laughs> oops, how did that happen? <laughs> no, now they're planning it, taking their temperature, taking prenatal vitamins six months ahead of time. I don't understand all that, but they're doing it. And they're, they're going along here, and uh, she, has a, she grew up in alcoholism. Her mother died of cancer. She's got a grandmother who's 90 years old and has parties in her head. You know, she's just not here most of the time. And that's okay. She has care for her. And then all of a sudden, she has a brother who has two children. And uh, 
she gets a call and the police have picked up his two children and taken them away from him. She comes to the al meeting. She's, she's mad. Oh, she's mad. She's mad at the disease of alcoholism. She's mad at her life. She's mad at everything. And uh, she calls and they get in the car and they drive from Atlanta to Savannah and they go to court. And uh, they have taken these two little kids, one four and one two, and they put them in foster care. And one's over here and one's over here and they're not together and it's just crazy. And, you know, and we're all praying. And, and uh, she gets a subpoena to go back to court and she said, will you go with me? And I said, well, okay, you know, I'll go. Get in the car, go down there. Her and, and my son and I, and we had no idea what was going to happen. She had a subpoena. She had to testify. So we were showing up. Well, let me tell you what, within four hours of walking into that courtroom, we were picking up two children in a parking lot at a shopping mall and bringing them back to Atlanta. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds a little bizarre to me, but we ended up with these two children. She ended up with temporary a year's custody of two children who are severely damaged by the disease of alcoholism. Not only physically, but emotionally. And they're doing the deal. They stood up and they said, yes, we will. We'll take these broken souls home and take care of them. Because it's obvious these people can't. You have no idea how proud I am of that young man. That he's willing to stand up and do that. And I called him and I said, I'm so proud of you. And he said, Mom, I'm not doing anything you wouldn't do. Uh, yeah, that's true. But I didn't know he'd gotten it. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you don't know that they've gotten it until it happens. And my husband called him and he said, uh, he said to my husband, he said, I'm doing what you did for us. You taught me how to do this. I never wanted to be a mother. Really didn't. My theory is that motherhood sucks on a good day. <laughs> and it really does. Because it, it doesn't matter how old they get, how far away they are, they're always here. They're always there with you. And you can pry. I prayed. I lit candles. I got a rosary in the room, blessed by the Pope in Italy. You know, talking about the Catholics, I'm saying the rosary. I will do whatever it takes to get some relief from those children. I want to talk. I want to talk about my mother. Now, I told you I hated her. And I hated her because... She stood and allowed my father to physically abuse us. Uh, I still do not condone that today. I, I no longer hate her for that. I understand today. I do not condone it. Uh, the program taught me how to hug her and tell her I love her. It taught me how to be kind and loving to her. Uh, and over the years, slowly, to develop some kind of compassion for her. Well, parents get old, and somebody's got to take care of them. 
So guess who got mama? (laughs) She was in Oklahoma. We went and we packed up everything. My kids drove her, drove her stuff out here, put her on a plane, had an apartment for her. The girls, I have a wonderful group of girls in, in, in Tucker, and they claimed the apartment, and they put her stuff up for her, and we, they would go by and see her, and they'd do her grocery shopping for her, and she'd bake them little cookies, and everything was fine, and she was at the kids' wedding, and all that was joyful. Then one day, my oldest son took her to the doctor. He says, you're not breathing right, Grandma. We need to go to the doctor. So he calls and he takes her to the doctor. The next call that happens is to me from the doctor. I said, Barbara, your mama has cancer. She has lung cancer. And it's, he said, and my doctor tells me the truth. Not all doctors will do that for you. Uh, he said, Barbara's the kind that it's really not operable. Uh, the best that'll buy you is six months. So I called my kids and I told them, and they, they were just beside themselves because they worshipped their grandmother. And uh, I went over there to her house, and she was laying in bed, and I went in, and I was rubbing her, and I said, Mama, you have cancer. She looked at me, and she says, Well, that's the way it goes. She was 84. And my youngest son was planning his wedding. This was in January. He was planning his wedding in March. And I said, we all talked. The whole family talked about it. And she, she, we let her make her decisions. She said, I don't want treatment. Uh, I don't want any of that stuff. All that does make you sick. I know all about it. Don't want to do it. Doctors don't like it. <laughs> I had to fire her oncologist. You know, they don't like that. <laughs> and I said, no, she doesn't want any of that. She wants to do this her way, and we're going to let her. And I had to fight for that to happen, but I did. And uh, we moved her. Uh, she she went to my son's wedding. She walked down and sat down, you know, and it probably took everything she had to make that walk. But she was there. And uh, right after the wedding, we moved her into my house, uh, and uh, that was in March. Uh, she died April the 27th in my home with me because of you. She was able to die in a place where she knew people loved her. The last words I said to her was, Mama, I love you. Without you, that would have never happened. And I'm so grateful for that. It healed that. We were at peace with each other when she died. Uh, And that was a wonderful thing. A wonderful thing. The other thing I want to share with you about all that is, you know that stuff? All that stuff y'all are collecting? I'm going to tell you what happens to your stuff when you die. (laughs) I'll tell you right now. Your kids sell it at a yard sale. So, honey, sell it now. Take the money and run. You know? Get rid of that stuff. Just stuff anyway. You know? Uh, today, because of you, we have a family. 
that stays together because we pray together. And I think that's real important. Praying together is the most important thing we do. It's the most intimate thing we do. Sex has nothing to do with intimacy. And that's really unbelievable for me to say that, but it doesn't. Holding my hand, my husband's hands at the end of the bed on my knees is the most intimate thing I do today. Because that's the closest that I'm going to get to God right now today. And when I'm with you, I'm close to God. And I want to be close to God. I want to be happy, joyous, and free. I want what the book tells me I can have. And I want it all. And I want it all right now. <laughs> so that means I'm willing to do what it says. I'm willing to do what my sponsor says. I have the same sponsor today. But in the program, 24 years, I have the same sponsor today. She's in California. She's 3,000 miles away. I know where she is at all times and how to get a hold of her. So if you're living in the same town with your sponsor and you're saying, I can't get a hold of my sponsor, you're lying. (laughs) You ain't trying. I get to see my sponsor at least twice a year. And when I need to see her, God puts her close enough to me where I can get in the car and go see her. Because she's involved in this deal. And she's out there and she's... I saw her in Illinois in May. She's going to be in New Orleans in November somewhere for Thanksgiving. I'm supposed to go there. I don't know if I can make it or not. But, you know... God gives me exactly what I need, exactly when I need it. God has never been late. God's always on time. And I know today that where God guides, he provides. And that's very true for me. He's provided me with a lot since I came to you. It's got nothing to do with material. I love you all. This is a wonderful, wonderful weekend. You've had great speakers. And I'm so glad I got to come here. Thank you. Now, Lori, you will read the promises. My name is Lori Ellis, and I'm a double winner. Well, I got the rosary blessed from the Pope, by the Pope, today. From Cajun John Boogie. Thank God for Al-Anon and Alcoholics Anonymous. These are the promises in Al-Anon. If we willingly surrender ourselves to the spiritual discipline of the 12 steps, our lives will be transformed. We will become mature, responsible individuals with a great capacity for joy, fulfillment, and wonder. We will discover that we are worthy of love and loving. We will love others without losing ourselves. We will see clearly and be able to perceive reality and recognize truth. Courage and fellowship will replace fear. We will be able to risk failure to develop new hidden talents. Our lives, no matter how battered and degraded, to share with others. We will begin to feel and will come to know the vastness of our emotions, but we will not be slaves to them. Our secrets will no longer bind us in shame. As we learn to forgive ourselves, our family, and the world, our choices will expand. 
With dignity, we will stand for ourselves, but not against our fellows. Serenity and peace will have meaning for us, and we will allow our lives and the lives of those we love to flow day by day with God's ease, balance, and grace. Unafraid, we will discover we are free to delight in life's paradox, mystery, and awe. We will laugh more. Fear will be replaced by faith and gratitude will come naturally as we realize our higher power is doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Can we really grow to such proportions? Only if we accept life as a continuing process of maturation and evolution toward wholeness, sometimes slowly or haltingly, occasionally in great bursts of brilliance. Those who work the steps change and grow toward life, toward health, and toward their higher power. Watching others, we realize this is also possible for us.